Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, this morning we'll read verses 1 through 7. So let us stand together as we're finding our places there. We'll read those seven verses and then pray for the Lord to bless our time in the Word. First Peter 3 verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your kindness in giving us these words. We pray that that you would move us to receive them as a gift. That we would understand them rightly, Father, and that we would apply them in such a way that you are glorified and we are helped and your gospel is commended in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This world is unkind to elect exiles. That's what we are. We are elect exiles. We live a controversial gospel in a contrary culture. And we do that for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And we do it while we wait for his return. And faithfulness to those things brings the heat upon us in this culture. And There may be no more controversial picture of the gospel than God's design for marriage. It's it's controversial because it is exclusive to one man and one woman. Not at all popular in this culture. And it's controversial because it contains authority roles that reflect the roles of both the Trinity and Christ in the church. The culture around us just hates it. Some even professing believers hate it. Some of you may know the name Rachel Held Evans. Uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure what what to uh, how, how to refer to her. I wouldn't call her a Christian because she's ashamed of the gospel. 
She, she wrote a, a book a few years ago called A Year of Biblical Womanhood. And in this book, she cataloged her attempt to live out the Bible's commands to women as literally as possible for one year. And it, it was just an egregious abuse of the scriptures intended to demean the notion of true biblical gender roles. It, 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 just a clumsy mocking of godly women and the word of God. But, but our, our culture has, has so successfully rejected God's standards for gender roles that even that phrase, gender roles, has, is itself almost intolerable even in some pockets of the professing church. So that people like Rachel Held Evans are clamoring for other people who claim the name of Jesus Christ to do whatever is necessary to rid themselves of God's good, good commands. One of the most difficult places to be, one of the most difficult places to be faithful today is in the life of a godly woman seeking to walk in humble submission to her husband for the glory of God. It is not simply that her husband may make that difficult for her, but the culture around her and even many professing believe, believers will scorn her. The wife who, who still lives by these biblical standards will be viewed by many around her as a pitiable figure at best, weak, victimized, and deceived. She will get no respect. But the godly woman embraces life as an elect exile. And elect exiles are not here for respect, are they? That is not what elect exiles are all about. Elect exiles are here for the cross. Elect exiles are here to sing of his cross and to carry their own as they follow him. I have been blessed my whole life to, to watch women love these commands and want only to obey them more faithfully. Now, I've known women who hated these commands, but by God's grace, I have, I have witnessed women love these commands and not regard them as a terrible pill to swallow, but simply pray, Lord, work these things into my heart. And my prayer this morning is that all of us would regard this passage as a great kindness of the Holy Spirit. A great kindness of the Holy Spirit as he has inspired much instruction in this passage to assist godly women as they navigate this most difficult task of commending the gospel in the midst of a culture that hates what they are doing. Now I invite you to look at your notes. Look at all those glorious blanks. I'm going to give Pastor John a run for his money. At least that was the plan. That was the plan. I fully intended to preach all seven verses of this text, but I couldn't pull it off. Splitting, splitting this text into two messages is going to be more helpful in the long run, but you're going to go home with some empty blanks, I'm, I'm afraid to say. 
Is this sermon just a sermon for married women? I do not believe so because all of these, all of these texts that we've looked at in the last three weeks, they all have things to say to everyone who is in a position of, of being under someone's authority. So there's, there's going to be something here for everyone at the very least, at the very least, we will have the occasion to enjoy the gospel together this morning, which is lovely. So first, the first point this morning, the main thing in this text is that, that wives must submit to their husbands. Wives must submit to their husbands. This is not a new thing to, to those of us who have read the scriptures. The apostle begins the passage with these words, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And so he's just continuing with the next, the next arena of authority in the life of elect exiles. So as with the government and as with work relationships, so now in marriage, he says, wives, commend the gospel by submitting to your husbands. And remember that submission is the subordination of your will to another. When a decision needs to be made in a marriage and discussion has taken place between the husband and the wife and the two then disagree and the husband says, this is the way that we need to go. The wife is to submit to her husband. That's what we're talking about here, right? Some have said of this New Testament command for the wife to submit to her husband that this is a culture-specific command, that the, the apostles were merely encouraging believers to conform to the social structures of their day. In other words, if the apostles had been writing to churches in 21st century America, they would have written something completely different. They, would, they wouldn't have written this. They were writing, as they wrote this, they were writing culture-specific exhortations. So, just as we should not take the apostles' instruction to slaves in chapter 2 as an endorsement of slavery, neither should we take the instruction here in chapter 3 to wives as an endorsement of the Greco-Roman culture that, that, that saw women as less than men. So we live in a different culture now. We have different social structures. Therefore, we should understand that living out the gospel in the 21st century America is going to look different than it did in Greco-Roman culture. Just like we, we, do, we don't have slavery, therefore the instructions to slaves should be understood as culturally specific. Similarly, we live in a time now where we have recognized that women and men are equal in every way, including in roles, and therefore the introduction to women, instruction to women in this passage is Cultural, culturally specific. How should we answer these kinds of arguments? It, it, is, it is not difficult if we look at the rest of the New Testament. If 1 Peter 3 were the only text that we could consult, those arguments might make sense. They, they, they might be persuasive, but the... the the, the whole of the New Testament teaching on these things shows us that the authority structure within marriage is rooted in the created order and in the gospel itself. And these are two things, the created order and the gospel, that cannot be explained away by 
cultural norms. All right? So let's talk about that for, for a moment and, and establish that what we're dealing with here, these are not cultural commands that, that, that pertain only to the original culture that Peter is writing to, but these are timeless commands. How do we know this? Well, first of all, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, if you're taking notes, you could write those down. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, Paul teaches that wives submit to their husbands. He uses language there that the husband is the head of the wife because of what we read in the creation account. Genesis 1 and 2. Specifically, 1 Corinthians 11.3 reads, Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. See, Paul is, Paul is interpreting the Genesis account for us. And he is he's interpreting that to mean that because of the order of creation, the man leads the, the wife and the wife submits to the husband. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 2, he teaches that the wife submits to her husband because Adam was formed first, then Eve. So the, the authority and structure in marriage is, is rooted in the Holy Spirit's interpretation of Genesis 2. This is God's pre-fall design for marriage. It, it doesn't change according to cultures. God created, created everything the way that he did the same way every time. You, you, no matter how you read first, uh, no matter how how you read Genesis two, he does it the same way every time. So it doesn't matter what culture you're in. You're going to read Genesis two the same way every time. Likewise, that that authority structure is rooted in the gospel itself. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul teaches that the wife submits to her husband because she pictures the church's submission to Christ in all things. And the husband pours himself out for his wife because he pictures Christ pouring himself out for the church. In this way, God intends Christian marriage to depict the gospel to the world. So when the apostles justify their instruction to wives in the New Testament, telling them, submit to your husbands, they don't point to cultural norms things specific to Greco-Roman culture, but rather they point to two unchanging things, that is the created order and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And both of these things indicate that that, that authority structure is inherently good. It's not a punishment. These are good things. The, the thing, think with me back to Genesis. What did God say about everything that he created in Genesis 1 and 2? What did he say about everything? Behold, it's very good. It's very good. And if we think that it's not very good, it's because our minds and our hearts are fallen. And we are, we are living in broken versions of what God created to be good. By, 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 placing, by placing an authority structure within marriage, God has not demeaned women. Nor has he made many gods out of husbands. Rather, God has woven his character into the very fabric of this most important of human relationships. Why would I say that? Because when we see authority structures in the relationships of marriage, we're seeing not just the gospel. We're seeing not just the created order. 
We're also seeing, according to 1 Corinthians 11, we're seeing the relationships within the Trinity as well. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, we find that, that the, the husband is the head of the wife, just as the father is the head of the son. If it is demeaning for the, the husband to be the head of the wife, then we would have to say that it is demeaning for the father to be the head of the son and perish the thought. Amen? Similarly, God's design for marriage is good because it's a picture of the gospel. So, so wives, the, 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 world, the world would and does say terrible things about you for obeying the scriptures in this regard. But when, when understood in the context of this gospel picture, consider the great privilege that is yours and your husband's. Think about this. The church submits to Christ in everything, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Does the church do this begrudgingly? And I'm, I'm, I'm asking this of all the saints in the room. Does the church begrudgingly submit to Christ? Is it a drudgery, a curse to submit to the Lord Jesus? No, no. It's, it's a great pleasure to the redeemed heart to say yes to Jesus. Is it not? He's changed us so that we want to say yes. I love that song that we sing here. Come ye souls by sin afflicted. Blessed are the eyes that see him. Blessed the ears that hear his voice. Blessed are the souls that trust him and alone in him rejoice. What comes next? His commandments. His commandments. His commandments then become their happy choice. They become our happy choice. Why? Because He has so worked the gospel into our lives that we, we want to obey Jesus. It's not, not a drudgery. It's not a drudgery. This is, this is wonderful. Wives, God has given you this beautiful thing of depicting that to the world when you submit to your husband. You're not saying anything about your husband. You're saying about Jesus. His commandments. His commandments are my happy choice. You are the church in that picture. And you're saying about Jesus. He is glorious. And I delight to obey Him. You've got a glorious privilege of depicting that in your marriage. When a wife submits to her husband, she makes a statement about Jesus. She makes a statement about Jesus. It's a pleasure to obey this Christ. Now, one effect of this, according to Peter's text here, is that this conduct has the potential to win a disobedient husband to the Lord. Unbelievable that this might happen. Wives should submit to their husbands, Peter says, so as to gain their husbands. Can you imagine such a power? This is astounding. L look at the rest of verse 1 and into verse 2. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, to be clear, this command is, is, is to submit your husband. It's, it's for all wives, not just for those who have husbands who are disobedient. But here Peter goes further. 
in, in a specific situation, a particularly difficult situation, in the lives of those wives who have husbands who are not believers. Peter uses that phrase, they, they, they disobey the word. They do not obey the word. And he uses that throughout this letter synonymously with not believing the gospel. Okay. The gospel is something to be obeyed. And some, some wives are in the painful circumstance of having a husband who is disobedient to the gospel. He's an unbeliever. Their husbands may, may be gained, may be won to the Lord without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, let's, let's be really careful here and interpret Scripture with Scripture, okay? It's not that the wife of an unbelieving husband should be completely silent regarding the gospel. That, 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 that would not make any sense whatsoever. Rather, she simply shouldn't badger him about conversion after having shared the gospel with him. So you should share the gospel with him and then let your respectful and pure conduct, as Peter calls it, let that do the rest of the talking for you. That respectful and pure conduct is your submission to your husband, according to this this text. Look look at the word respectful in, in the text there. The word respectful, the original text more literally reads... Seeing your in fear, pure conduct. He calls it in fear, pure conduct. Now remember earlier, back in chapter 2, Peter has reserved fear for God. Remember he said, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay, So just like in his address to servants back in 2.18, Peter is saying to, 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 to the wives here, let your fear of God be visible in your submission to authority. So he is not here in this verse talking about fear or respect of your husband. Now Paul does command respect of husbands in, in Ephesians chapter 5. But here, Peter is talking about respect or fear for God. The, this respectful conduct is best understood as conduct motivated by reverence for your God. Now, when, when your unbelieving husband sees that, he may be won, not by multiplied words, but by seeing the gospel and that it is true in your life. Submission to the husband is a, it, it, it is in a sense, it's an unnatural thing. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gospel reorientation of the fallen human heart. Do you understand this? Do you understand why this is so important to God that, that the husband would do his thing, which is not normal, what, what God commands the husband to do in marriage, not natural to the fallen human heart. What he commands the woman to do, not natural to the fallen human heart. Why is it so important to God, to God that we would do these things? Because only a heart that has been stripped down and rebuilt by the gospel can do these things. Listen. When everything went haywire in Genesis chapter 3, part of the curse, part of the curse there was that Eve's impulse to lead her husband and Adam's impulse to let her became hardwired into their hearts. That's Genesis 3.16. You can look that up on your own time. Genesis 3.16. What they did 
What they did in the garden became hardwired into their hearts. And that is why the fallen husband now, without fail, abuses his authority either by domineering over his wife or by passively neglecting her. And the fallen wife desires to reject her husband's authority. She does not want to be led, but she wants to lead. Okay? That's a, it, it, it is devastating. It is devastating. But the gospel speaks a better word. So we, we, we go into the New Testament and we find, we find Paul teaching in Ephesians chapter 2 that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, what did God do? He raised us up with Christ to walk in a different way. In Ephesians chapter 2, God raised us up with Christ to live differently. And then we go over to Ephesians chapter 5 and we find exactly what that looks like. It looks completely different than what happened in the garden. The husband loves his wife. He pours himself out for his wife. The wife lovingly and respectfully submits to her husband. See, the gospel transforms our hearts so that we are no longer a fallen Adam and Eve, but we are more like a risen Christ in the church. And a godly wife who submits to her husband, even an unbelieving, unjust husband, Doing that by going against the grain of her former fallen condition and going against the grain of the loudest voices of her culture, she demonstrates the truth of the gospel to everyone and especially to the person closest to her, her husband. And if you are the wife of an unbelieving husband, you rightfully care about his soul. You are right to talk a bit to him about the gospel. And this, this text assumes that you have talked to him about the gospel. Otherwise, this text could not describe him as having disobeyed the word. Obviously, he's, been, he's, he's heard the gospel. But your temptation may be to rely exclusively upon verbal persuasion to win him. To, to, to bring it up all the time. Or to, to, to use an ugly word. To, to, to pester him. According to this text, you've got to trust the, the wisdom of the Scriptures. According to this text, the greatest power that you have to persuade your husband once he has heard the gospel is the humble way that you lovingly submit to his authority. Your conduct is a powerful instrument in the hands of the Lord to convert your husband. And the, the wife of the believing husband should think much along the same lines. Not exactly the same way, but very similar. The wife of the believing husband doesn't have the responsibility to, to share the gospel with her husband unto conversion because he's already converted. But she has a responsibility to do a number of other things for him because he is her Christian brother. And all of these one another commands in the New Testament are hers to obey in his life, including these commands to speak the truth and to confront sin. And a temptation for the wife of a believing husband may be similar to the temptation for the wife of an unbelieving husband in that she may be tempted to rely exclusively upon her verbal persuasion to move him to greater faithfulness to the Lord. She may only confront verbally and confront and confront and confront. There's nothing wrong with multiple confrontations, but allow the Holy Spirit to do His thing. Let your godly conduct be the sharpest tool in the Lord's hands to prick the conscience of your husband. Now, according to this text, this, what, what we're talking about here, this is true 
beauty. In fact, this godly conduct is the primary beauty that you should seek to attain. That, that, this is our third step in, in the notes here. Wives should submit to their husbands as their adornment. As their adornment. Look at verses thir- 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Don't let your your adorning, your decoration be external, but internal. That's, That's the idea. And I like the New American Standard version here because it... Adds a helpful word here. It says, don't let your adorning be merely external. Some have misunderstood this text to indicate that women shouldn't braid their hair. and They shouldn't wear jewelry. They shouldn't wear makeup. They shouldn't do anything to look good to their husbands. Well, at the end of verse 3, you can see there, at least in my version of the ESV, I think it's been updated, but in my version of the ESV, it says, the putting on of clothes. That would be a bit of a difficulty, wouldn't it? No, what's what's the idea? The idea is your primary pursuit of beauty should be internal. Should be internal. There's nothing wrong with with looking good. There's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. There's nothing wrong with this at all. Your primary pursuit should be Godly character, what Peter calls the hidden person of the heart, this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So, so a, a question to ask yourself, is it more important to you to look beautiful than to have beautiful character? Our culture is not helpful, is it? Our, our culture, by its extreme emphasis on the appearance of women, pushes the idea that your external beauty is your greatest asset. Peter writes of a different kind of beauty here that is precious in God's sight. The, the, the word precious here means valuable or, or costly. It, it, it's, it's more valuable than gold. He, he's using this word imperishable again. He loves this word imperishable. That, that godly character of the heart, that is what makes you beautiful. It's an imperishable beauty. It's not going to die. All of the, all of the jewelry, all of, all of the jewelry, it's going to perish in the fire in the end. All of our bodies are decaying as we speak, are they not? Godly character we take with us into eternity, and it pleases the Lord. This is the kind of of beauty that that we are to to attain. And if we follow the grammar back up to to the beginning of this passage, we find that this kind of beauty is is the kind of character that is part of what wins the ungodly husband. Now, what what enables all of this? What enables the Christian wife to submit to her husband, even even to a husband who does not obey the word? It is her hope in God. The next point in your notes. Wives must submit to their husbands because they hope in God. 
Look at verse 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. A, a more literal rendering of that first line of verse 5 is, this is how the holy wives, the hoping in God ones, adorned themselves. The hoping in God ones. What a wonderful phrase. For Peter, hoping in God is practically synonymous with believing in God. He uses he uses hope and faith interchangeably in this letter. To, to trust in God unto salvation is to hope in God unto eternal life. Some spouses, both husbands and wives, place their hope in the possibility of a godly marriage. Thinking things like, if, if, only, if only he would, he would come to know Jesus. If, if only we could have this kind of marriage. And these, these, these feelings of, of hopelessness rise and fall as their spouse's prospects for changing rise and fall. So the God, a godly wife may, may, may desire with all of her heart, I, I just wanted to come to know Jesus. I, I, I want Him to love me like Christ loved the church. I, I want us to, to pursue the Lord Jesus together. I want us to have a godly marriage. All of those things are godly desires. It's a good and godly thing for a woman to want her husband to know Jesus. It is a godly thing for her to want to have the, an Ephesians 5 kind of marriage. It's a good thing for her to want to share eternal things with, with her husband. But here's an important question. Is that your hope? Is, is that what keeps you going, serving, loving, giving? On, on, on the last day... It, this, is, this is really important to, to, to keep in, in mind. On, on the last day and into eternity, your husband is not going to be your husband anymore. Jesus teaches in the Gospels that in his kingdom, men and women neither marry nor are given in marriage. We will all be eternally single. If you are setting your hope in this life, on a particular kind of relationship with your spouse, we could borrow some language from, from the apostle in 1 Corinthians 15 and say, then you have life in, you have hope in this life only, and you are of all people most to be pitied. What has P Peter said about our hope in this letter? He says, We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he has instructed us in 113 to set our hope fully on the salvation that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let the return of Jesus Christ, eternity with the great bridegroom, let that be your hope. That thing that you cling to in the night, which allows you to say in good times and bad, everything is going to be all right. 
Everything is going to be okay. God is true and Christ is coming. That's the hope of the believer. It's okay to want these other things. It's fine. It's fine. It's good and godly to want a godly marriage. But hope is everything is going to be okay because Christ is coming. And that hope frees you to obey God, trusting that His way is better than yours. The holy women of old did not hope in their husbands. Their husbands were perfectly imperfect, just like my wife's husband. How, how, did, they, how did they do it? <coughs> how, did they, how did they serve the Lord? Being married to such men. Well, he, he says, he said here that they were hoping in God ones. That's, that's, that's the kind of person they were. They, they were hoping in God ones. What, what a wonderful thing for that to be your overriding characteristic. That you hope in God. I, I hope in God. And so I hold loosely to everything but Him. Listen, he gives Sarah as, as an example here of this. And that should be encouraging to all of you. Because, first of all, she wasn't perfect. And second, she obeyed her husband in some really difficult situations. Just read, read Genesis. You'll find this encouraging. The holy women of old, these, these hoping in God ones. Listen, they are the ones. They are the ones that the Christian wife should emulate. Not the feminists of the culture who are driven by the fallen heart of Eve. They would say to you that if you submit to your husband, you are weak, you are a doormat, you're a fool, you, you are pitiable, and possibly you are a traitor to your own sex. But look at this text again. For, for this is how the holy women of old who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They decorated themselves by submitting to their husbands. How did they adorn themselves? By submitting to their husbands. How did they seek to be beautiful? Submission to their husbands. Their understanding of beauty was dictated by what? It wasn't dictated by their husbands. It was dictated by their hope in God. They cared what God thought more than anyone else. They didn't care what their culture thought. They, they wanted to please God. Our culture flip out over this sermon, wouldn't they? Absolutely they would. Can't you hear them? Can't you hear them? Submission to their husbands is what made them beautiful? Are you kidding me? That's, that's what the culture would say. Yes, yes, that is what the Holy Scriptures say right here in front of us. And, and ladies, you're not going to be beautiful to the culture obeying this. You are not. You are not going to be beautiful to the culture believing this. Embracing this, obeying this, you are not going to be admired by the lost. But listen, that is the life of an elect exile, isn't it? To whom will you be beautiful? God Almighty. You will be beautiful to God Almighty and to other hoping in God ones. A, a woman who does this is not making much of her husband. She is making much of Christ because she says... Christ is my Lord, and I obey Him by obeying my husband. Don't listen to the culture tell you that you're weak or less if you're submissive. Remember, the culture speaks from fallen hearts and depraved minds. 
You are like Jesus when you submit. Jesus submitted. The Gospel of John is is filled with Jesus saying things like, it's my food to do the will of him who sent me. I've, I've come not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. To say that submission to authority is demeaning is to say that the Father eternally demeans the Son. It is not weak to submit to your husband. The, the, the wife who submits to her husband has more strength in her little finger than Rachel Held Evans has in her entire being. It takes strength. It takes strength and godliness to submit to authority. A- anyone can rebel. Anyone can defy authority. We, we, we've got babies all around us that do it from the womb. It takes, it takes Holy Spirit power in the heart of a converted soul to submit. It is the image of Christ at work in you. When you submit to your husband, it's beautiful to God. Who cares what the, what the culture thinks? He says of Sarah at the end of verse 6, and you are her children if you do good and, and do not fear anything that is frightening. That's covenant language. You are her children. You are hoping in God ones if you do these things. Now that is a, that is a conditional clause, but maybe not in the way that we might think of it. We do not, you do not become a hoping in God one by doing good works. The idea is that, that by doing these good things and not fearing, you demonstrate the truth that you are a hoping in God one. Now, what should we make of that last part in particular? And do not fear anything that is frightening. It, it can be a frightening thing to follow a man who doesn't fear God. Some of you ladies know what that's like. A, a, a man who doesn't obey the gospel, who isn't, who isn't a believer, who doesn't love the Lord, who, who therefore has all the wrong ideas about ultimate things, that can be a terrifying thing. But doesn't that very act demonstrate your hope in God? That, 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 that's the idea. By, by obeying the Lord, doing what He says, even when, even when it is a fearful thing, a dangerous thing to do, you're showing that you really trust in the Lord and not in this man. You're trusting God Himself. Don't fear to submit to an ungodly husband. Hope in God. God has a heart for the vulnerable. Listen, we're going to see that next week when we get to verse 7. We're going to see that. What happens to the heart of a husband who fails to honor his wife, this daughter of the king? What happens? His prayers evaporate before the face of God Almighty. God has a heart for the vulnerable. You are a daughter of the king. You can hope in God. Listen, I'd like to close this morning by addressing two possible thoughts rattling around in in your hearts right now. The first is is this possible thought that I, I have failed. It may be that some of you realize that you have failed to submit to authority. You have failed to to be subject to your husband, perhaps even an unbelieving husband, and you've grieved that maybe you have pushed him away from the gospel in some way. Worse, you feel as as if maybe you have have displeased the Lord in in these things. Listen, remember that the, the gospel speaks a better word to all of us who are failures. We are all failures. 
We are all rebels against God in many ways, even as believers. You know what? God's, God's mercy and God's atonement don't just address the sins that we committed before we heard his gospel and repented and believed. Isn't that good news? On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for sins that you haven't even committed yet. Sins that I haven't even committed yet. What word did Jesus Christ speak regarding those sins, past, present, and future on the cross? What word did he speak? He said, tetelestai. Means it is finished. It's what was stamped on a debt to say, paid in full. The Father notarized that thing three days later by raising Jesus from the dead. Have you failed? Of course. We, we have all failed this morning. Has, has Christ succeeded? Over abundantly. In what ways? He has succeeded over abundantly by living perfectly on our behalf and transferring that to our account and by dying in our place so that now there is no condemnation for us. So what must we do this morning if we find that we have, that we have failed? It is beautifully simple. We repent of our failures and we joyfully believe this gospel. A second thought that may be weighing on some of us right now. Just two words. I can't. I can't do this. I cannot do this. This is especially difficult in the lives of those wives whose husbands don't know the Lord. And in the lives of those wives who have husbands who claim to know the Lord, but who are not walking with Him. And the great temptation is to think that I, I cannot do this. To that, the gospel would say, you are right, you can't. And, oh yes, you can. In, in your own strength, you cannot. You, you, you've proven it over and over again. But listen, Glory in that weakness, just like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12. Take that weakness and hold it up to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that your grace is sufficient for me. Your power is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that your sweet power will rest on me. I can't, Lord. But you can, and trusting in you, I will gospel speaks a better word. It always does. Let's pray together. Father, we're blessed. We're so blessed to have at 
this church, a congregation full of women who love the gospel and who want to commend it in these ways. We pray for your blessing on them, Father. You grant them strength. You would grant them boldness. That you would grant them joy. You would grant them the ability to forgive their husbands. You would grant them to bear up under trial and difficulty. You would grant them to keep the face of Christ in their minds and on their hearts. Remembering that He is the Lord that they serve. Pray, Father, that the voices of the culture would not persuade them, but that the Scriptures, Scriptures would be the melody of their hearts. They would love the gospel to the extent that all of the lies of the world would fall on deaf ears. And Father, if there, are, if there are those here unbelieving husbands, we pray for those husbands right now that, that you would work right this moment, that your Holy Spirit would do a work That he, would, that he would prick the conscience, that he would grant repentance and faith and that, that they would be saved, Lord. And if it's not your will that it's today, we pray that it would be tomorrow, that it would be the next day and that in the meantime, Father, you would grant strength and perseverance in the lives of these godly women as they, as they do what this passage has called them to do, which is continue to live godly lives that commend the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and sing together.